Who here can tell us why John wrote this account? Why did John write down all of the things that he wrote in this book of the Bible that we call the Gospel of John? Here's the whole Bible. Here's the New Testament. Here's the book of John. So it's part of the Bible. John tells us why he wrote these things. Can anyone remember, boys and girls? It's not that he didn't have anything to do one day and he thought he'd just write down a few interesting facts. No thoughts? Well, John tells us himself at the end of the 20th chapter of his letter, he says, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, John says, the things that I did write down in this book are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one who God sent, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. So as we read this portion of God's word, remember John deliberately wrote down these things, not just so that you'd have an interesting book to read, but he wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's chosen, anointed rescuer, and that believing you might have life in his name. So let's read it with that in mind. John tells us, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Sorry, this is John 3, 1 to 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. But cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Lots of deep and wonderful things in God's word. We we can't get to understand them unless God himself helps us through his Holy Spirit. So let's ask him to do that. Let's pray. Our glorious triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we commit this time around your word to you we pray that you would help us to not merely read these words as interesting accounts of things which happened far in the past but as they are the words of life Lord we pray that through your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see and understand and and to do these, these true things that you have revealed in your word. Most of all, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up, that he would draw in salvation many to himself. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, as I said, the basic theme today is no one, everyone, whoever. We've seen a few hints of that in the, uh, the readings that we've had from the Old Testament and then from the New Testament. Let's just do a quick review of the actual events. One set of events happened about 1,400 years before the second set of events. So, what was happening about 1,400 years ago? Where, what, 2020? Back to 1,020, 400, 600 and something. What was happening in the 600s? The Danes were invading Britain. It was the so-called Dark Ages, Middle Ages. Long time ago. So... We've got two accounts of God's work in the lives of his people 
One from the time of Moses, one from the time of Jesus. So in Numbers 21, we see God's people are in the wilderness. They've escaped from slavery in Egypt. They're travelling towards the land that God has promised them. But on their journey, they become discouraged, our Bible says, but um, disheartened or they become grumblers, basically. And they spoke against God and against Moses. And basically their message is to Moses, look, you're supposed to be leading us out of this deadly situation we were in, in in Egypt, where we were slaves and the Egyptians were making our lives a misery. And you told us that there was this wonderful place that we would go to and our lives would be just full of riches and joy and it would be wonderful. But... Look around us. We're in a wilderness. We're in the middle of a desert. There's no water. The only food we've got to eat is this this manna, whatever that is, that appears every morning. And we're just sick of it. It's it's light. It's, It's nothing to us. So here's a people who have been given the great blessing of being named the people of God, people on whom God has placed his love, people on whom God has exercised his rescuing power, people on whom God has provided his nourishing mercy. Each morning they have food, miraculous food to eat. And yet what's their response? There's no water. We're sick of this This. What food? Because the word manna means what? Because they came out in, in the morning and said, what? What's, what's this? And they're grumbling against God. And essentially they're accusing God of bad faith. They're saying, God, you told us you were going to give us life. But if things keep going on like this, we're going to die. So their basic heart attitude was an attitude of grumbling against God of distrusting God and speaking against God and against the prophet that God had given them to to lead them. What's the Lord's response? The Lord acts in judgment. He condemns them. He brings the very thing that they said they were afraid of. He brings death into their camp. How does he do this? He sends snakes among the people. Now, various commentators aren't sure whether the word fiery snakes, it's really snakes of fire, refers to the inflammation that happened when people were bitten and their skin went red and swollen and was really painful, or whether the snakes were actually red-coloured themselves. It's clear, though, that they were deadly. And God's judgment upon the people was to send these snakes into the camp among the people to bite the people and many of the people died. The very thing they were, they were, they were afraid of. The snake, of course, associated with sin from the very beginning of the Bible. So Satan tempted Eve in that 
that occasion through the, the mouth of a snake and led her, into, her and Adam into sin. God uses this same picture to be the penalty for sin for the people in the wilderness. So the people respond as they keep doing, as many of us keep doing. God acts in chastisement in our lives. We see our sin and they come to Moses and they say, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord, against you. Please pray to the Lord. Stand between us and God and plead with him. Maybe he'll take the serpents away. Was that, that wasn't the way that God did respond to Moses' prayer. We're told that Moses prayed for the people, but the Lord's answer wasn't to take away the snakes from the camp, but was to give them a way of being delivered from the, the power and the impact of the snakes. And it sounds to our human thoughts, our human imaginations, like a really strange thing to do. Just like it seems a really, and I've had, I've had people say this to me, it just doesn't sound sensible that God would send his son to be crucified on a cross to, to bring spiritual good to people, that just, I mean, I wouldn't do it that way if I were God, so it can't be true. And I'm sure there were people in the camp who responded in the same way because what God told Moses was make a serpent, and the, the first word is a fiery serpent, and then we find out that it was a bronze serpent, so it was made out of metal, Presumably reddish coloured. Some translators say it was actually a copper serpent, but anyway, it was it was a, a a metal serpent that had visually the a reminder of the um, the fiery nature of the serpents. So it was in the form of a snake. So you had to make it. Now I don't expect that Moses himself personally made it. He had it made. He he had. We know he had very skilled. Uh, metal workers uh, in the people of Israel so he gave them the instructions God gave the snake was made and it was lifted up on a pole God instructed them he said make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and God's promise was that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it he shall live. That was God's promise. Make a serpent, put it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. The people were worried about death. You've brought us into this wilderness to die. You promised us life, but you're going to give us death. God, in Condemnation at their grumbling sends death, but then in response to Moses' prayer, he gives a way to life. 
And so we read that Moses obeyed God. Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was that God's promise came true. So it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So here in Numbers, we have an account of fear regarding death, leading to grumbling against God, not trusting God, not believing God, not taking him at his word or accepting his promises, God sending condemnation on such rebellion, which led to death, and then in response to faithful prayer of his faithful prophet, God giving a way to life instead of death. And that way was to have the very image of their sinful rebellion and the punishment of that sinful rebellion lifted up. That metal snake didn't have any venom. That metal snake didn't have life in the snake. But in God's providence, anyone... Sorry, everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And so it was, if anyone had been bitten by a serpent, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So that was God's dealings with his people back in about 1430 BC or so. We come forward to the life of Jesus. Here he is in Jerusalem at the Passover. And a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus comes to him. Comes to him by night. Now, John picks up the theme of light and darkness later. We're not absolutely sure. Maybe Nicodemus was fearful of the opinion of other Pharisees, of other Jewish leaders. He wanted to do to come and meet Jesus secretly. We don't know how much emphasis to put on the fact that it was by night, but John tells us it was by night. This bears the stamp of an eyewitness account. We can just see John and maybe other disciples there in the room with Jesus as Nicodemus comes. I expect, it's a nighttime meeting, that there was probably a lamp sitting on a table with a a wick and some oil in it. And probably, as we'll see later on, there was a bit of a breeze blowing, maybe coming in the window, and maybe the flame would flicker every so often. Maybe we'll see later that Jesus possibly referred to this effect. Now, this man, we read he is a man of the Pharisees, so he's a a very... um, a member of a, very, a group of men who are very serious about the word of God. They'd made a whole set of rules that they believed they'd extracted from the word of God. He was a ruler of the Jews. He's very prominent in the Jewish nation. And Jesus, later on, calls him the teacher of Israel. So it's as though he is named the best teacher theological seminary in the world 
and name the most prominent professor in that theological seminary, and that's Nicodemus. Professor Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes, and it's as though he sits down with Jesus, and he says, Professor, we know that you're a teacher. He, he gives Jesus the honour of giving the same title in Aramaic, honoured teacher, that Nicodemus himself had. It's as though he said to Jesus, Professor, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Did anyone else pick up the plural there? Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher. Who are we? Nicodemus is one man. Maybe he's speaking on behalf of the Jewish nation. He's a ruler of the Jews. Maybe he's speaking on behalf of all the Pharisees. Probably not. Presumably he's speaking on behalf of a group of people in Jerusalem who have been getting together and saying, this, this man Jesus, he's doing amazing things. He's not just making sick people get better. He's making incurable people who'd never get better in a million years completely well again. Look, there's no way that he could be doing this sort of thing unless God was with him. So he's got to be a teacher sent from God. So presumably there was a group of people in Jerusalem who had come to that conclusion and, and Nicodemus had come along to maybe find out more from Jesus. We know that you're a teacher. Come, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's a, you know, that's a respectful, thoughtful opening. How could Jesus have possibly responded? Well, thank you for the honour. That's, yeah, that's good. It's very important that you... Um, learn from me and here are, here are six things I want you to learn and I'd like you to um, maybe do some research and uh, give me a 2,000 word essay on, on each one of these. Was Jesus that sort of teacher? No, he was the sort of teacher who said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whoa, where did that come from? Nicodemus is talking professor to professor. You're a teacher sent from God. Yeah, maybe I can get some teaching from you. That would be really good. But he gets hit between the eyes with this challenge. Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus uses that phrase three times over. Most assuredly, I say to you, Truly, truly, this is the distilled, genuine truth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is the sort of teacher who knows what his students don't know. So he doesn't set them work that just rehashes all the stuff they already know. He goes right to the areas that they don't understand. And he challenges them. And he knew that Nicodemus didn't have a, an understanding of 
new life from God. He didn't have an understanding of the radical change that God needs to bring into one's life to see, as he says here in verse 3, or to enter, as he says in verse 5, the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus speaks a lot about birth in this portion. Born again, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born? Born of water and the spirit, born of the flesh, born of the spirit, born again, born of the spirit. Speaks a lot about birth. Now, we know that I'm conscious of confidentialities here, so we know that there are some who are expecting birth to happen some months into the future. So it's an important topic. We're all delighted when a birth happens in our family. We uh, had a lovely message from friends of ours to say that their first grandson had been born. It's It's always a great delight. But Jesus is talking about a special kind of birth. And it's really interesting that the, the Greek word that John has used to record Jesus' statement, that's translated in our Bibles as born again, can equally mean born from above. So born again, born from above, exactly the same word. And when you think about it, it's the same idea. We can be born in an earthly sense, that's simple, or we can be born again, and the only way to understand that is in a spiritual sense. Nicodemus tries to understand it in an earthly sense and can't get anywhere except some ridiculous idea of going back as an old man into his mother's womb, which even he can see as crazy, but he... Jesus is clearly meaning a spiritual, supernatural birth which comes after the natural, earthly birth. So, the being born of water and the spirit expression is drawn from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel speaks of God washing his people, of putting a new spirit in them. It's a supernatural change that's brought about by the power of God. And Jesus is emphasising to Nicodemus, this is what needs to happen before anyone can enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is really struggling. How can these things be? Uh, okay, I can understand I can't go back into my mother's womb and be born again, right, fair enough, but, but you're telling me I have to be born of water and the spirit and I'm not going to see the kingdom of God unless that happens. How can it be? What, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? And so Jesus responds and says once more, most assuredly, I say to you, you're the, te- you're the teacher of Israel. You're the top theological professor in the top theological seminary in the whole nation and you don't know these things 
Jesus then says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Who are we? I think Jesus is picking up on Nicodemus's we from before. We know that you're a teacher sent from God because nobody could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus presumably speaking on behalf of a group of people who've been challenged by what Jesus has been doing. I believe Jesus here is speaking on behalf of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We speak what we know. We testify what we have seen. I think Jesus, in a sense, in, a, in essence, is saying, on behalf of the triune God, I speak to you. I am the Logos, I am the Word. We speak what we have seen. We are reliable witnesses. We can speak of heavenly things because we are heavenly. We are the, the God of heaven. The problem is that Nicodemus does not receive the witness of the triune God. And Jesus says, I've tried to use earthly illustrations um, to show you these heavenly truths, but you, you haven't received them. And of course, one of those heavenly illustrations that Jesus, earthly illustrations Jesus used was the, the idea of wind. And again, this is a play on words on Jesus' part. In the Hebrew language, the word for wind, the word for breath, and the word for spirit are all the one word. Same in Greek, the Greek language. The word for wind and the word for spirit are the one word. I, and this is purely imagination on my part, I imagine that there's a lamp sitting on the table or on a lampstand as Jesus is speaking and the, a breeze blows through the window or maybe through the open door and the, the flame flickers or you can hear the wind whistling outside. And Jesus says, look, the wind, it blows wherever it wants. You can hear, you can hear the sound of it, but you can't tell. As a human, you, even as a human living on earth, you can't even tell what an earthly thing like the wind is going to do. It just happens. The wind just blows. You can't tell when it's going to stop blowing or which direction it's going to start blowing. It just happens. And that's an earthly illustration of a spiritual truth that God, through his spirit, he sends his spirit where he wishes. And you can see the effects of spiritual new life but you can't make it happen. You can't tell how it's going to happen. It's in God's hands. And Jesus comes, I, I believe, to the end of um, I mean, it, it's obvious that the Apostle John, in the first verse, is just telling us, is narrating events for us. I believe that from verse 16 onwards, we are reading the Apostle John's 
if you like, comments on or instruction about what Jesus has been saying. If we read the first chapter of John's Gospel, he tells us about the pre-existent Word of God, how he became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and we beheld his glory and to him he gave the power to become the sons of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of the will of a husband but of the will of God. In the same way, I think he's picking up those themes that he had in chapter 1 and, and giving us a commentary. I think the, what Jesus left Nicodemus with is that statement in verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus very specifically draws the parallel between what happened back there 1,400 years ago in the wilderness with God's people and what is going to happen with him. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Surely John 3.16. How do people usually start off quoting that verse? The word for. For God so loved the world. But what's the for therefore? It's, I believe, it's John's link to what Jesus has said. Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I think John then says, For I'm giving you through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are still God's words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's as though John had meditated on the events of Numbers 21 and he'd thought, You know, isn't it wonderful to see the love that God showed to his Old Testament people? God so loved Israel that he gave a metal serpent that whoever looked to that serpent would not not die but live. Isn't that wonderful love? even though that nation had rebelled against him and grumbled against him and despised the miraculous bread that he gave, what love for a rebellious people to give them a way to escape death and the penalty of their sin. And I think John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is moved to reflect and and meditation on the rest of the teaching of, of Jesus throughout his life and after his resurrection, thinks, well, that was wonderful love, the love God showed to Israel. But what love God showed the world, even broader in expanse, a love that was shown to a a limited nation for a period of time is now 
shown across the whole globe. A globe that's just as rebellious, just as evil, just as sunk in darkness as God's Old Testament people were. But he hasn't just given a metal snake on a pole, he's given his son to die on a cross. His son who had no sin, just as the metal snake had no venom. His son who died just as the snake on the pole was dead. That snake on the pole was useless unless one who was bitten looked to it and trusted in the promise that God had given. Jesus' death on the cross is useless unless one looks to him and trusts in the promise that God has given. You know, all of those people who were bitten by the snake in the, in the wilderness and were about to die and looked to the snake and through God's miraculous healing power were given life, they all eventually died. But what's the promise that Jesus gives? Yes, Moses gave a snake so that people wouldn't die of snake bite but would revive, but they eventually died. But the life that Jesus gives is everlasting life. And John drives that home. So, no one? As you go away, remember, there's no one like Jesus. No one else is the only begotten Son of God. No one else can teach with the authority that he did. No one else was lifted up to die on a cross like he was. There's no one like Jesus. But there's also no one who loves the light unless God works in their life. As the Apostle Paul said, there is no one, none good, no, not one. But God's promise is to everyone. Everyone who believes. And that everyone becomes whoever. And if you turn the word whoever around, it's basically everyone who. Everyone who looks to Jesus, not just as... Chris pointed out at the very beginning, not just reading facts about Jesus, not just accepting, oh yes, Jesus was a historical figure and yes, he might have been executed by Romans and there was some story that his disciples told about they thought he was alive again, but oh yeah, okay, I'll accept some of that, but so what? That's not looking to Jesus with the faith that those Old Testament saints had when they looked to the snake. It's believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The condemnation is that the light has come into the world and men, everyone, love darkness rather than light. For everyone practicing evil hates the light 
and does not come to the light. But whoever believes in the Son of God who is lifted up will not perish but have everlasting life. And I challenge each one of us here to consider have you looked to the Lord Jesus? Are you one of those who can say, I am one of the whoever's, I'm one of the everyone who looks to Jesus and trusts in him and what he has done to make me right with God? If you do, you know the new life that God brings in Christ. Amen.